0: Good afternoon and welcome to Citizen K, a weekly current affairs program featuring in-depth interviews and perspectives. I'm Kareem Mosna. This week on the show.
1: We feel like we are like in, in low income right now. And there's no more, as you can see, we are like a five drivers waiting here. There's no, like, it's not rush like before, you know.
0: The community shares thoughts and concerns with inflation at a 40-year high and the Bank of Canada raising interest rates to 2.5%, the highest it's been in almost 25 years. Also coming up, I'll take you back to a time before Kingston had a hospital and a time when women were banned from medical school here at Queen's. First though, last Wednesday, I was working away on a story when a co-worker said, you might want to get over to Mitchell Hall. There's uh, something going on over there, and it turns out, well, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was here to make an announcement. We've reached a deal with Yumicor to build a new battery facility in Loyalist Township. This plant will supply
2: materials for a million electric vehicles a year. Canada isn't just going to be a global player in EVs. With this and other announcements we've made, we demonstrate that we get to be global leaders in electric vehicles.
0: UMICOR, based in Belgium, is investing $1.5 billion for this plant that will be the first electric vehicle battery facility of its kind in North America. Trudeau says construction of the facility will create a thousand new jobs and hundreds of long-term positions once the facility is running. Umicore CEO Matthias Miedrich says it will be a 100% clean energy plant transforming minerals into active battery materials. I had the chance to speak with Umicore CEO Matthias Medrick. Here's my conversation. Okay, so Matthias, uh, just um, break it down for those that don't have sort of an understanding of how this is going to work uh, here in Canada. What exactly will, will be going on here?
3: So as I said the first thing is now with this news that we have the plan to uh, to build a facility here we will uh, work with our customers so that they exactly tell us what kind of demands they will need us to put in place and that's uh, you know part of capacitizing the factory the next step will then be uh, uh, actually the engineering process so the whole factory as it's a, it's a uh, a very big factory is engineered, so it's it's developed. And the next step, uh, which will be launched in parallel, is the, what's called the permitting process. So we have to uh, you know, submit what we want to do to the local authorities. They will give the approvals and, and permit, and, and once the engineering and the permitting is finished, we can go into the actual construction phase.
0: What exactly is the missing link? Uh,
3: the missing link in the big picture is that This is the first factory in North America that uh, does not only this, what's called the CAM, the cathode active material, but it's going upstream into the pre-product, which is the PCAM. Uh, And then the next step, and that's what we, let's say, discuss into the future will be the step before is refining. And then to close the loop, it is uh, recycling of batteries. And the missing link, because Canada has an abundance of, uh, of raw materials that are needed and on the other side there are a lot of North American customers who need it and we are the missing link in between to close the loop for battery materials.
0: And this is going to uh, have a great benefit to, to the electric cars and to electric vehicles in general.
3: Absolutely, uh, and as I said it before, my and our strong conviction is that electric cars should be truly CO2 neutral not only uh, while driving, but already in the construction, in the manufacturing. So that's why the decarbonization of the whole supply chain up to the mines, that's what we see uh, our responsibility even. And uh, because we have been a mining company 200 years before, we know how the world of mining works and uh, we have a lot of corporations and ecosystems that we will form to make that happen on the full supply chain. Great,
0: thank you very much.
3: Thank you very much.
0: This is Citizen K on CFRC 101.9 FM. I'm Kareem Mosna, and that was my conversation with UMICOR CEO, Matthias Miedrich. Also at the event, Minister of Science and Innovation, Francois-Philippe Champagne, and Kingston and the Islands MP, Mark Gerritsen. Here's my conversation with Mark Gerritsen. Climate change, certainly a key priority uh, identified by youth uh, in this area and in many areas across Ontario. what does what should this um, sort of indicate in terms of the priorities of Canada towards addressing climate change? Well, I think one of the really telling things is why this particular company chose this region, and you heard him say that one of the key factors was access to clean energy so now we have companies that are interested in establishing in certain parts of the world where they know they can access clean energy and that's what we're known for in Ontario Um, so I think that it's uh, you know critical uh, that people start to and
1: businesses and organizations start and government quite frankly start to recognize the importance of having clean energy as it relates to attracting new investment into regions and that's
0: what we're seeing here today and uh, I think it just plays into the whole sustainability uh, and sustainable objectives uh, Uh, That our region and Queen's University, for that matter, has. That was Kingston and the Islands MP Mark Gerritsen. Construction for the EV battery plant is set to begin next year in 2023 and is slated for completion in 2025. Now here on Citizen K, I'm going to take you back to the 19th century. The Museum of Healthcare is running the Sick City Walking Tour, a chance to discover what healthcare was like in Kingston from the mid-1800s All the way up to World War II. Museum of Healthcare Programming and Communications Coordinator Claire Notman joined me for a very enlightening conversation. Sick city tour, uh, taking people back to the 1800s. Now, without spoiling too much of the experience, uh, could could you give us a bit of uh, an explanation about what it would have been like uh, back then uh, accessing healthcare?
2: Sure. So the the mid. So we're looking at when we're doing the tour. We're looking at the mid 1800s to the mid, mid 1900s, um, and it certainly would not have been um, a great time uh, to get sick, especially uh, in the early days um, of Kingston. Um, we're talking about a time when we don't even understand that germs are the source of illness. Um, so, you know, we are doing when things come about, like uh, epidemics like cholera or typhus come about, we are doing our very best to fight them, but we can't stop the spread because we don't understand the process of infection. Um, so it probably, probably was a quite a scary time to be alive because when you got sick, um, your fam- either your family would take care of you, um, if you didn't have family to take care of you, and you arrived in Kingston, um, there were some small, uh, there was a small hospital, it was called um, a charity hospital, but it was only open in the winter, and it was just a small block house um, sitting quite close to City Park, we think, um, and it was run by volunteers, um, volunteer women who were just trying to take care of people. Uh, Other than that, uh, the city set up something called fever sheds, uh, where they tried to shelter sick people because there was no hospital, um, not until 1845.
0: Wow. So before 1845, there was not a basically a formal hospital that we now see Wow. No,
2: no, not at all. No. And there were no medical schools. So there was no uh, formal training. Queens didn't form their medical school until the 1850s. um, And then that was still, it was still quite a small school. Um, So there really was no, you know, there was no professional healthcare like we know it today. So it really would have been um, a very, very difficult time. People were dying of things like the common cold because we simply just didn't know how to treat those types of diseases.
0: You mentioned Queens, and, and I understand that, uh, that Queens campus will be part of this tour. I understand also uh, some racism and discrimination uh, is, is part of this, this era that you're focusing on. Tell me a bit more about that and how Queens connects here.
2: Right, and so um, we really, really try in this tour to tell the story of the people that were affected by health, lack of healthcare or the lack thereof. Um, And so definitely Queens plays into that uh, story. And in the 1850s, they developed their medical school and formed a partnership with Kingston General Hospital so that doctors, um, uh, medical students could be trained at the hospital and they would pay. So then the hospital was making money, um, but they were also getting, you know, real hands-on training at the hospital. So that's kind of the connection there um, to Queen's um, and Kingston General Hospital. So it's King, Queen, uh, Kingston General Hospital has always been a teaching hospital from, from the outset. Um, And so Queen's Medical School formed in about the 1850s. They were actually very quite progressive. They actually started letting women in quite early. I think it was about the 1860s. Uh, They started letting women in and then in the 1880s, they let women into the medical school. Um, However, it was very, very (laughs) short-lived. Some, uh, well, one professor in particular, Dr. Kenneth Fenwick did not like having women in his lectures he felt it um, restricted his academic freedom because he had to watch what he said because he didn't want to offend any female sensibilities Um, and so he was uh, quite awful to the women at the medical school um, and um, the other male students were also then he kind of riled them up and they uh, threatened to leave. Um, because there were women in the medical school with them. And so eventually, uh, Queens banned women from the medical school in about 1883.
0: When, when approximately did, did this change to allow women back into studying?
2: Not until the Second World War. Wow. Not Yes, not until uh, 1943.
0: Learning so much just in this conversation.
2: Yes, yes. And it's really, really interesting um, because Jenny Trout, who is one of Canada's first uh, licensed doctors, she heard about what was going out at, at Queen's and she came to Kingston. Um, she gave um, she donated $10,000 and started up Kingston women's medical college so we actually had a college here it was just for women to study medicine it lasted about 11 years and we do we did get some graduates from that um, college Um, but what she found is that women who were studying wanted to be in the city they didn't want to kind of be in the rural area of kingston so that that college closed about 11 years after it started but uh, there was a medical school just for women here in kingston
0: uh, going forward here, I understand the only remaining Victoria era amphitheater um, is is part of this as well. I, I'd love to know a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, so that stands. It is in the underground parking garage uh, beside the Museum of Healthcare on George Street, um, and it was designed by Dr. Kenneth Fenwick, the same man who. It, basically got women ejected out of Queens Medical School. But he was um, kind of an up and coming superstar surgeon of the time. And because we had moved uh, so far forward in surgery we had um, by the 1860s had developed kind of um, had uh, anesthesia had come about, um, infection control was better. So people were more and more willing to get surgery. So surgery became quite popular. And he um, designed this amphitheater as you, as you as you can imagine, like a teaching uh, surgical amphitheater. So the patient would be in the middle and about 100 students could sit um, in the stands above. It was three layered. Um, He also made it so round so that no dirt or germs could catch in corners it was painted all white so you could see if there was any kind of fluids that needed to be cleaned up. Um, It also would have had um, a huge skylight in the roof that's gone now um, for natural lighting because there wasn't a lot of uh, great lighting quite yet. Um, But he really was um, quite a superstar um in terms of surgery Um, unfortunately he only got to use this fantastic uh, surgical theater for three months he was operating on someone who had an abscess and he accidentally he actually had a, a small cut on his hand and because we weren't wearing gloves yet during surgery he got an infection um his colleagues um, called for, um, a specialist to come on a train, but they just didn't get here fast enough. And he died at the age of 44.
0: So much, so much great history here. So for those going on the tour, so, so tell me a little bit about how, how this will work. So you'll begin at the museum of healthcare.
2: Yep, so we begin at the Museum of Healthcare, but we don't tell the Museum of Healthcare story to the very end. Uh, we start on the waterfront and talk about the cholera epidemics. And really, really, this story is about this tour is about telling stories. So we try to put people in the shoes of those that were here. So we tell the story of the uh, cholera epidemic of the 1830s, people coming over from Britain, immigrants coming over from Britain, and having to deal with cholera on the waterfront with no hospital. Uh, then we wrap around um, to a next we talk about another epidemic and that's the typhus um, epidemic, um, which mainly affected people uh, fleeing from um, the potato famine in Ireland and right outside 100 Stewart Street there, um, there is a memorial to those people and the healthcare um, professionals that helped them. Um, We then wrap around to stand right in front of Kingston General Hospital because it is a National Historic Site, it is Canada's oldest hospital with the original building still intact. It's a beautiful building and so we talk about what it might have been like to be admitted as a patient in about 1845, certainly wouldn't have been pleasant, (laughs) Um, but it was a, a dry place for people to be a dry and warm place, Um, and then we wrap wrap up to Summer Hill, which of course is Queen's oldest building and where the medical school started. And there we do tell the stories of um, a particular black uh, student who was banned from the school and some of the women um, as well. Uh, We come back down through kind of the medical buildings, tell a short story about grave robbing and body snatching, which became a problem in this era because we needed um, cadavers for anatomy classes, so grave robbing and body snatching became a big problem in Kingston. Um, And then we come back down to the Fenwick operating theater, look at the outside of the amphitheater. Unfortunately, we can't go in anywhere, um, but you can see the outside of the building. And we end up at the Museum of Healthcare, of course, another national historic site uh, built in 1904 as a residence for nurses training at Kingston General Hospital Nursing School.
0: The name Sick City, it's it's quite a memorable name. Uh, What went into choosing this name?
2: We really just tried to capture that feeling that if you were sick or if an epidemic hit the city, there was really no way of stopping it because we just didn't have those infection control measures that we have today. We are so unaware um, after, you know, being through COVID, we know how to control this virus. Now we know now we know how to control this virus. But at this time in this early uh, time in Kingston, we just didn't have those processes uh, available. So things like cholera and things like typhus would spread like wildfire. So really, it did affect not just the people that were sick, or the immigrants that were coming in, it did spread to the city. So that's kind of the, the feeling you we were trying to go with.
0: And it sounds like definitely it'll put things into perspective in terms of where we're at today. Absolutely.
2: And, you know, COVID was kind of, you know, not a blessing, but it really um, brings forward that connection. We really are trying to connect people with the past and really kind of look at that comparison. You know, we did some very strange things when the cholera epidemic hit, we did things like, um, Uh, take out the, if there were um, animals at Springer Market Square being kind of sold or auctioned off, we cleaned all those out because we thought that cholera came from smelly air, when it really, it is um, a bat, it comes from contaminated water. So we just really just didn't have that kind of information. And so things spread and people got very ill and died.
0: I don't believe we've touched on the Ann Bailey building yet.
2: That's right. So the Ann Bailey building um, is where the Museum of Healthcare is housed. So it was built in 1904 as a residence for nurses training at Kingston General Hospital Nursing School. Uh, Kingston General Hospital started its nursing school in 1886. And when it started, the nurses actually lived with the patients. That, of course, became a problem with infectious diseases being carried on to the nurses, and actually nursing schools became so popular, um, they needed another space for the women. Uh, nursing schools became popular because nursing was seen to, uh, seen as an, a respectable uh, profession for women to have, um, so they built the Ann Bailey building in 1904 to house these, uh, the nurses that were training here.
0: So people listening right now if, if they are really curious and want to take this this tour uh, where's where can they go to uh, find information was uh, is, is there a cost to this.
2: Yes, yeah, so the tour is $10 per group, and so that means you can bring up to 12 people for $10. Um, we think is a pretty great uh, deal for a lot of really great um, history. Um, you can visit the Eventbrite page, um, our six-city Eventbrite page, or you can visit the Museum of Healthcare's website or any of our social media feeds to find more information.
0: Excellent, Claire. Thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Claire Notman is the Museum of Healthcare Programming and Communications Coordinator. You are listening to Citizen K on CFRC 101.9 FM, cfrc.ca, and on podcast. I'm Kareem Mosna. Yesterday here on CFRC at 4.30 on The Stroop, I spoke with assistant professor continuing adjunct at the School of Policy Studies at Queen's University, Eugene Lang, about the Bank of Canada raising the interest rate a full percentage point to 2.5%. The decision was made to curb inflation, which is expected to reach 8%. You can hear my conversation with Professor Lang by going to podcast.cfrc.ca and clicking on The Scoop. While you're there, please subscribe. But now here on Citizen K, we turn to the community. I spoke with an Uber driver, a Queens student, and a recent retiree to hear their thoughts on the inflation rate and interest rate hike.
3: Well, I just retired, so uh, I wasn't really looking forward to an interest rate hike like this but i think it's in the long run it's going to help out our our economy and i think it's probably a good thing in in the short run as long as it's only till the end of the year i'm hopefully next year that uh, interest rates will, will drop down again because seniors are struggling now and people are trying to afford the rents and everything else so we actually need uh, something as a plus instead of a minus right now but that's what that's what i think anyways
0: yeah so you feel that just right now with all this inflation that short-term this is a positive thing.
3: I think it's a positive thing and if we can control COVID and not have to go back into a shutdown this fall it'll be all right. I think it's going to be all right.
2: Well for me as a student to be honest I am getting a little bit concerned that I'm still quite unsure of the banking processes and then even just adulting in general to be honest. My parents still sometimes manage my money so I am still quite unsure how it's going to affect me but I'm starting to see signs of it in like prices rising grocery stores and services rising and my job doesn't really pay me enough to uh, afford those costs. So that I think that's my major concern, not knowing what's going, how it's going, it's going to affect me and just starting to see the signs of it.
1: For the whole economy, we feel like as Uber drivers, there is no cash flow with people. They people like they wish to walk more than like taking Uber rides. So that affects the whole market, you know, just like uh, and the gas prices as well for the, this kind of transportation is affecting us. We feel like we are like in, in low income right now and there's no more as you can see we are like a five drivers waiting here there's no like it's not rushed like before you know i think they're affecting the cash flow with the people yeah do you do you um, so you're all uber drivers yes. here okay. yeah yeah for sure yeah we're like we're working with these apps like uh, as like a full-time job uh, but we're looking for something else right now because as you see like it's not like rush like before we feel there's like a Huge problem with the cash with the people, and yeah, we feel it, we live it. Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah.
0: Do you? Uh, Often times, the interest rates are due to you know the increased inflation. Um, do you feel at all that this might have a positive effect?
1: We think no, because like you know, like we used to go to the any grocery store, like buy two hundred bucks, you got like a full basket and. You return home with like a lot of bags right now, like uh, 200 bucks for groceries for like small family is nothing, you know. That's uh, th- that's uh, like what the effect and uh, we think it's not just like about like a uh, five or six percent that increase, no, because like we have uh, gas prices as well, it's higher and uh, shortage in groceries, shortage in like uh, in everything. So, yeah, the rent prices, as he mentioned, like it's so high right now, so the inflation rate, like uh, it's a it's more than like a six or seven percent. It's about like a 20. This is actual, you
0: know. Some community members sharing their thoughts on inflation and the Bank of Canada's decision to raise the interest rates. And that's all for Citizen K this week. Citizen K was produced with the generous support of the Faculty of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Queen's University. CFRC 101.9 FM broadcasts from Kingston, Ontario on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe and Haudenosaunee peoples. Thank you for listening. I'm Kareem Mosna.